0: Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. My name is Maya Ferdman. I'm the program manager for the Luskin Center. Uh, The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Dr. David Hayes Bautista, the director of the Center for the Study of Latino Health and Culture at the UCLA David Geffen School of Medicine and a professor of public health and medicine at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. For decades, Dr. Hayes-Bautista has researched the Latinx community with particular attention paid to trend lines and health outcomes over time. He is the preeminent scholar in this field, having authored numerous books and publications on everything from the Latino epidemiological paradox to the shortage of Latino medical staff in the U.S., to the American Civil War origins of the Cinco de Mayo holiday. He has also worked on numerous initiatives addressing the modern health disparities, modern health disparities, and over the past few weeks has re- has released various reports about the differential outcomes of the COVID-19 pandemic on various populations. This work is particularly relevant in light of recent reports that Latinos are much more likely to both contract and die from the virus than non-Latinos in many states. So we are so excited to have you join us. Welcome, Dr. David Hayes-Bautista.
1: My pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with you all.
0: Wonderful. Well, we'll get into your current research in a moment, uh, but first it'd be great if you could share a little bit about your personal history. Um, you didn't originally come from a medical background, so how did you end up studying Latino health?
1: I originally came from an engineering background. In fact, I wrote my first computer program in 1963 on an analog computer. I mean, you don't even see those in the computer museums anymore. They're so old. Uh, So as I graduated from Berkeley in 1980, I had been involved with the Chicano movement and two things happened simultaneously. I was going on to graduate school. I was going to study in the basic sciences at UCSF. uh, And to this day, I'm a basic scientist within the medical school, but also I was asked to be the founding executive director of a small community clinic in East Oakland called La Clínica de la Raza. So I had this interesting experience. Uh, During the day, I was responsible for starting up from a a two-room storefront uh, with no, well with $240, a clinic with the audacious goals of bringing services where none existed in East Oakland, bringing them in Spanish and bringing them for free. And we had all of $240. Then I was going to school at UCSF, uh, where I was studying the basic sciences, and of course I thought, well, this is great, so I can uh, find out what do we need to do with this clinic I should be learning here at UCSF. Well, it turned out I was vastly disappointed. There were no data on Latinos, much less Latino health. And the engineering me and said, oh, this is crazy. How can we build a clinic if we don't know what the needs are? But I guess the needs are so many. Anything we did, we were meeting a need. But I was very dissatisfied, plus I was very dissatisfied with what little uh, they did teach about Latino health, which was pretty bad, very uh, filled with stereotypes that Latinos were passive, fatalistic, superstitious, would rather go to a curandero than go to a physician, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, when I finished up at UCSF, I took a position at the School of Public Health at Berkeley uh, because I just wanted to get some data. I just wanted to know really what is Latino health. And that question has been so big, I've stayed in academia ever since. So what I've been studying is the paradox of Latino health. Uh, And the paradox is this. Latinos in California across the country can be reasonably uh, compared to other populations. They'll have the least education, the least health insurance, uh, the least access to physicians. We've been studying the Latino physician shortage for decades. And yet, and yet, in spite of all that, Compared to the rest of the country, Latinos have 30% lower age-adjusted mortality for heart diseases, for cancers, for uh, injuries, for chronic lower respiratory disease. In fact, for all causes of death, lower, not higher. Latinos have a three and a half year longer life expectancy at birth, have uh, very good infant mortality, far lower, about 30% lower than the national norm, smoke less, drink less, do drugs less. And the paradox is, well, if they're poor, they shouldn't be doing that. Mm-hmm. That's the paradox. That's what we've been studying. Mm-hmm. About 15 years ago, I was wondering how far back I could trace this. Uh, so I went back as far as 1940. That's as far as we had electronic data records. Uh, and then suddenly the, the data stopped. So I pulled out my California histories to see, well, what were Latinos doing before 1940? And not surprisingly, I say not surprising because I was born and raised here in California. I went to school, I did California history in the fourth grade, like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the histories all gave me the same basic narrative that a long time ago, some Spanish missionaries came and all by themselves they built the missions, or oh, maybe the Indians helped a little bit. Uh, and then along came the United States in 1848, and the people that were here were Spanish or they thought they were and they just kind of disappeared and mm-hmm. you didn't have anybody who spoke Spanish here until about 1920 when suddenly there were Mexicans fleeing the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. Well the demographer in me, because I studied epidemiology and demography, I, I do population-based things, thought that doesn't make demographic sense and I read every California history I could find uh, including all the academics. They all pretty much gave the same picture So I said, well, I need to do what I do, which is data. So in the summer of 2003, I said to my staff at CESLAC, we're going to spend the next three months trying to figure out when did Mexicans get to California. Now, I knew when the Spaniards got to California. I didn't know when the Mexicans got to California. And so we did data. We looked at Spanish colonial census. We looked at Mexican Republic censuses. We looked at the U.S. census from 1850 onwards. We looked at birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, uh, because I'm a data guy. Mm-hmm. And I have recreated the Latino population in Los Angeles from the day it was founded in 1781 to uh, April of 2020. And I can tell you that the picture I was given was very, very wrong. So there actually, we are celebrating this year, the 250th anniversary of the presence of Latino medicine and science in California. It's been here for 250 years. So now I have a much better understanding of these uh, long-standing sort of profiles, the long-standing Latino presence in California, the importance of Latinos, not only for California, but for United States history. Mm. For example, uh, when Mexico declared independence in 1810, Mexico also abolished slavery, declared racial equality and citizenship, uh, and also that uh, married women had property rights independent of their husband. So these were constitutional values. Here in California, we were a part of Mexico. When the U.S. took over in 1848, Latinos went to the California Constitutional Convention. They argued against the introduction of slavery, and Mexico's previous abolition was honored. They argued against white supremacy, that they had been citizens, irrespective of the racial background. That was honored, that women, married women had been able to own property independently of their husbands, as that was honored. And because they did this in Spanish, California came in as a bilingual state. 1850. There was no accompanying slave state per the Missouri Compromise. And basically, the fact that Latinos insisted on these constitutional precepts being in the new state of California, that led to the American Civil War, which, by the way, is why we celebrate the Cinco de Mayo here in the United States when it's not celebrated in Mexico. It was mm-hmm. part of the Latino experience of the American Civil War. Yeah, That's a whole other book. I wrote a book about that. That's a whole nother,
0: <laughs> Which I highly uh, recommend to anybody listening.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, and, of course, because of the gold rush, there had been a huge in-migration of miners from Mexico, Central America, South America, the Caribbean, Brazil, Spain even, um, into California. A huge population explosion that's been totally missed by historians, but I'm a demographer, epidemiologist, so I like to look at data. Mm -hmm. And ever since California became a state, every 20 years, there have been nativist movements, starting with the American Know Nothing Party in the 1850s, uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic, pro-slavery. And they took all, swept all the offices in California in 1855, and Latinos fought against it. When Reconstruction ended in 1879 80. You had another nativist, uh, James Kearney, and the Working Man's Party was part of the um, nativist reaction to Reconstruction. And in California, what we did is we took away citizenship from Indians, which Latinos had put in an 1849 constitution, removed the bilingual provisions of the Constitution, and kicked all the Chinese out of California. So we were right part of that Reconstruction, early Ku Klux Klan movement. 1890s, you had the American Protective Association Association that were trying to protect America from what? From immigrants, from Catholics, etc. In the nineteen teens is when uh, the U.S. and Southern California segregated itself. That's when we put in a lot of our racial restrictions, restrictive covenants, and that was the second rise of the Ku Klux Klan. In the 1930s, we had the massive deportations of undocumented. Well, actually, they didn't have to be undocumented. A lot of U.S. citizens, one out of every three Latinos in California was deported. In 1950s, we had Operation Wetback. In the 1970s, English only. 1990s, Proposition 187. And right on schedule, 20 years later, the current situation. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, been there, done that. Yeah.
0: So it sounds like, I mean, from what you're telling me, well, first of all, you saw a gap, right? You saw nobody's talking about Latino health in in particular, no, but there's right. not enough data. And you say you're a data guy, right? Like mm-hmm. you, yeah. Over time, you've not only identified some trends, which are the, this paradox that you described, which to a lot of epidemiologists um, would be confusing, but you've also tracked throughout history the presence of the Mexican and the Latino um, population in the way that they've been part and parcel of. California history that it is that you cannot study California history without studying um, Latino participation and so you I want to focus on these different um, These different historical moments that you just pointed out you talked about the massive deportation of um, Undocumented immigrants in the 30s. You talked about operation wetback. you talked about prop 187. Can you? maybe focus on what, what, let's say three, four of those over the course of this, of the last hundred years, 200 years, and how, how do those inform our study of public health and of Latina health specifically? What is it about those moment, historical moments that have shifted um, or informed Latina health?
1: Well, let's come to 2020 and let's just talk about uh, the COVID crisis because it starts to illustrate what's been going on for the past 170 years. Uh, the coronavirus, let's talk and consider that it's kind of like the rain. The coronavirus, like the rain, will fall on anyone young, old, rich, poor, doesn't matter. It will rain on you, period. Now, in this society, yes, everyone. Uh, may be exposed to the coronavirus, may be wet by the rain, but some people have very strong social protective umbrellas. So when the coronavirus hit the first week of March, uh, the uh, call went out, stay home, shelter in-house. Well, some people have the types of jobs they can do from their home via a laptop. They have good health insurance. They have a, a physician. They've had a long relationship So you remember early for about the first six weeks of the COVID crisis, uh, you were supposed to get tested, but you needed a doctor's recommendation to get a test. Well, if you didn't have a doctor, if you didn't have health insurance to pay a doctor, you weren't going to get tested because you didn't have the uh, access to care to get tested. So that group, uh, surprisingly, uh, has had very low uh, rates of COVID. Um, because I've had low rates of exposure and very low rates of death. Other groups, however, are stuck out in the rain with great big holes in their social protective umbrella. Uh, To begin with, many people have to do jobs so that some people can shelter at home. But by working at these jobs, they are exposing themselves to the coronavirus. For example, farm workers. Let's just start Mm -hmm. with them. Uh, well, without farm that, workers.
0: Actually, if you don't mind, um, before we, because I really, I want to delve deeply into now and talk about your research in depth. But before we do that, I just want to go backwards, if you don't mind, okay. uh, to think about, you're talking about that umbrella. I love this metaphor that you brought up. Mm-hmm. If the rain will fall on anyone. Some have more umbrellas than others. Maybe right. we can go back. Why is that? Maybe okay. you, why do some have umbra- the umbrella and some don't? Um maybe look at history to inform that
1: a little bit. Okay. I do work on um, diversity and health, mm-hmm. and I use um, quantitative resources going back to the very first census in 1790, and I have been very interested in who were the minority groups that were so designated in the census. Why were they designated as such? And going back to the very first census, uh, there was a very clear delineation on the one hand were was the white population. On the other hand, was the black population that were almost all slaves, and then the Indians. And the census very carefully to demarcate between the whites on the one side, who were citizens, and the Africans and Indians who were not citizens, in the sense of having the vote. Mm-hmm. They were citizens in a diminished capacity, like women were citizens, also did not have the vote, children the feeble-minded, all these diminished capacity. Yes, they were quote-unquote citizens of the United States, but the states then set the definition of who was a citizen to vote, and they set it along terms of race. You had to be a white male to vote. That's why we needed to make sure in our data systems we knew who was white and who was not white. So this continued uh, through the early 19th century. By 1850s, the Census Bureau finally standardized its categories, so that there was a difference between white, on the one hand, than the non-whites who were blacks, mulattoes, and Indians. And that was, again, for purposes of restricting their ability to vote. Now, the problem with Latinos is when we were conquered, we're kind of racially ambiguous. We're very mestizo. We are, in fact, what I call Indo-Afro-Oriento-Ibero-Americans. And I look at our DNA. Basically, we have ancestry from the Americas, from... Uh, Europe, from India, from Asia, from Africa, you name it. We never fit very well, but the whole intent somehow was to make sure that non white Mexicans could not have the vote. This was debated hotly at the California Constitutional Convention because Latinos were very aware that if uh, they were not allowed to vote, uh, they would not be able to uh, advocate for their interests. Uh, and so it, there was a punt at the end of the Constitutional Convention that a judge and a jury would know who was white and who was not white. But Latinos weren't so convinced of that. They actually stuck in a provision that allowed full-blooded Indians to be citizens. But the whole point of defining these uh, groups as non-white was so that they would be denied full participation. They would not have a voice, which means they weren't getting the full benefit of U.S. citizenship. Some of them could be held in slaveries. Others could be through the Greaser Act, just jailed at a sheriff's whim because he didn't like the way they looked. So we have racially structured this society from the very beginning from 1790, and those who fell on the side of being not white were not allowed full access either to uh, participation or to the benefits. After the 13th Amendment, then we had our separate but equal uh, legal structure that was in force until I was an undergraduate in college. So That's why some groups have very full social benefits in their umbrella, and other groups did not. That was racially built in from the very beginning of this country. And as I look at census records, health records, you know, when somebody goes to the hospital, about the third or fourth question we ask is, what race are you? It's a remnant of all that history. And it just so happens that the coronavirus COVID crisis is, once again, uh, highlighting this disparity by race groups that have been denied full participation in U.S. society for about 150 years.
0: Yeah. It seems like in the study of health, we cannot throughout in the study, it's in the historical study of health, you become you begin to realize how you cannot um, separate that ra- the racialized um, social structures over the, the racial, the racialized dynamics over centuries in in looking at what's happening today. That exactly. it's, part, it's essential. It's essential. It,
1: mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, Latinos provide kind of a, a series of paradoxes that force us to have to re- understand why are we putting people in a racial box? What do we mean? What is a race? Mm-hmm. What makes the difference between white, black, and Latino, for example? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there has been this what, long- what, are,
0: what are those paradoxes?
1: Well, the paradox is the Latino... Um, paradox of Latino health. Well, we have 30% fewer heart attacks, 30% fewer cancers. We live three and a half years longer. I mean, we're always looking for the cure for heart disease, the cure for cancer. Well, Latinos have already got it. But we're not supposed to because we're a minority, we're a racial minority, and we're poor, and we have horrible acts. We were not given that social umbrella. How can we possibly have that? That's why I like to look at uh, subaltern racial narratives. I like to look at community agency. How do Latinos manage to put together uh, a society that bestows these health benefits upon them, that reduces your risk for heart disease by 30%. So I'm looking at uh, these categories not as biological constructs, which they have been taken to be, and some people still assume they're biological. If you're born Mexican, you're going to be an idiot all your life sort of a thing. Um, But they are social constructs. They're social legal constructs. They're for a reason. And yet... These communities also push back. We're seeing some pushback right now out in the streets of, of what, about 140 cities in the country. We're seeing pushback. Uh, Latinos have pushed back by figuring out how to reduce the risk for heart disease and the risk for uh, major causes of chronic death. So when the COVID crisis started, uh, and if you remember the very first week, in March, when L.A. County Health Department released its map of COVID cases, they're all in the platinum triangle, Beverly Hills, Brentwood, Bel Air, et cetera. And I had a couple of people, me, see, there's the Latino epidemiological paradoxes. No, it's not. That paradox is for style of life diseases, heart, cancer, stroke, what you eat, what you drink, whom you associate with over your lifestyle. COVID, coronavirus is communicable. That's something else. If I breathe on you, I can't give you a heart attack. If I breathe on you, I don't give you cancer. It's a product of your lifestyle. I can breathe on you, and if I have coronavirus, you're going to have coronavirus.
0: And so to clarify, the Latino epidemiological paradox you're talking about is about these social, these social the the social and lifestyle um, choices or, or tendencies um, in a group. And so that's where, why we see that paradox, which does not apply to a communicable disease like COVID.
1: Right. Uh, And classically, Latinos have had higher rates of communicable disease like tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. But up until now, very few people die of tuberculosis. If 100 people die of tuberculosis in a year in California, that's a lot. So it's communicable. And Latinos consistently have had higher rates of tuberculosis, which has to do with a weak public health infrastructure that we keep weakening more and more every year. That's a public health issue. Well, coronavirus is a public health issue. But right now it has deadly consequences. You can die at the end of all of this.
0: Yeah. Well, so that actually brings us one perfectly into now, right? Um, Can, so you started to tell us what's going on. um, Yes. With the coronavirus crisis. Can you say more about what is happening to Latino? What, how is this affecting Latinos uniquely uh, in California and also across the country?
1: Well, we, we know best in California because we have fairly good data. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, only three states have given uh, race ethnic breakouts that include Hispanics California, New York, and oddly enough, Utah. Uh, So, in other parts like in Florida, Texas, we don't know yet. But the situation here is that while uh, Beverly Hills, Brentwood, and Bel Air were sheltering in place with good health insurance and good access to a physician, the gardeners, the nannies, the farm workers that planted the food, We're not being provided any personal protective gear. Uh, The truckers that bring the food into the city, the uh, shelf stockers in the grocery stores, the checkout clerks. My gosh, just stop and think. A checkout clerk in a grocery store probably passes within uh, an arm's length of about two to 300 customers during a shift. And up until recently, they weren't even offered personal protective equipment. And these are the types of occupations largely filled by Latinos and communities of color bus drivers, automobile mechanics, uh, construction workers, attendants in the nursing homes. So these communities are having more exposure because they are working, they're essential workers, so the others can shelter in place and be isolated. So no wonder you're getting uh, an outbreak amongst those who work the meatpacking plant, for example, what's happening in Vernon. Uh, we see this in agriculture and the uh, fruit and vegetable and nut packing areas not only the farm workers, but those who work in the packing houses. Uh, now uh, coronavirus has ripped through those structures. Well, if they had been able to uh, make sausage from home, they wouldn't have been exposed. But you can't make sausage at home, uh, at least not on the industrial scale that this country requires. So certain groups, because of the nature of their occupation, have been exposed more to coronavirus, which means more will contract it, more will develop COVID, More will probably die, but it has nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It has to do with who is being exposed so that others can shelter at home.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing um, biological about it. It's not at
1: all. Not at all.
0: Sociological. And I'm, you know, in another report that you, that you recently released, you highlighted that Latinos are twice as likely as non Latinos to have no health insurance. Can you speak a little bit about why why that is and how that plays into the outcomes we're seeing?
1: That's a um, result of the fact that in this country, uh, we are the only country, we are the only advanced economy that does not offer either universal health insurance or universal health service. Japan, United Kingdom, Germany. They all have one or the other. Everybody gets access to health care. This country does not have that. And the idea was that private industry would provide the insurance. Well, even at its height, only about 60% of the U.S. population got its insurance through private industry. But that has changed dramatically since the uh, the recession of 2008. Uh, One of the first things that got lopped off was health insurance, etc., So increasingly, people don't have insurance through their jobs. And then a lot of the types of uh, industries and organizations for which Latinos work, like a uh, farm, uh, as a domestic worker, they're not offered insurance by their employer, simply not available. And up until recently, an adult simply couldn't get, an adult male could not get Medi-Cal. They simply weren't eligible for Medi-Cal because you're supposed to get it through your place of employment. Well, what if they don't offer? Well, that's your tough luck. Hmm. So we have now the the uh, residuum of uh, about 50 years of this notion that you will get your insurance through your place of employment that only worked for uh, about now a third of the population. Uh, And then particularly now in the past three months, as many businesses suddenly had to shut, many of them are going under. Uh, One of the first things that will jettison is health insurance. And, of course, it's their employees who no longer have the coverage who then have to go out and find work and, of course, get exposed to coronavirus as they're now working in the packing houses and the meat houses and construction, etc. So this country, for ideological reasons, has refused to follow the path of all the other advanced industrial economies. We do not provide any universal access to health care. We're the only one that does that. And we wind up spending twice as much. As any other country, we spend about 18% of our gross domestic product on health care, and about uh, a a third of the population has no access to care. Uh, Other countries spend about half that, 7, 8, 9% of their GDP on health care, and they have universal access. So there's something not right with the way we've decided to do it, and I think we're seeing the price being paid. Uh, Because of the racial structuring, it appears that, Uh, Latinos, African-Americans, Asians, et cetera, uh, are out of the system, but it's not because they opted out. It's not because they wanted to be out. Structurally, they're in that part of the system that simply offers them very little incentive or very little assistance to access care, either through insurance and then finding a physician that can speak your language. There are a lot of barriers.
0: Yeah, that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up because just, I think it was today in the LA Times um, was highlighting the racial disparities of COVID infections and deaths um, in the county, uh, and it included Latinos as a, as disproportionate and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders um, as highly disproportionate to the population. African Americans, Asian Americans. Can you reflect on that a little bit on on how, where Latinos fall and the multiple different racial and ethnic groups and how, how yes. coronavirus has impacted them?
1: Yes, in fact, we uh, released a report um, last week, a week and a half ago, where we looked at case rate. Uh, we looked at uh, this over six different age groups from young children, zero to 17, young adults, 18 to 34, uh, lower middle age from 35 to 50, upper middle age, 50 to 64, elderly, 65 to 74, to 80 to 79, and then the old elderly, 80 and above. In all six of those age groups, we then looked at the different groups, and basically the relationship through, through the life cycle was this. <clears throat> Asians in every age had about 50% more, a higher case rate than whites. African Americans had about twice the case rate compared to white, Latinos about three times the case rate, and Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. These are Samoan, Polynesians that are not the Philippines uh, had four to six times the case rate. So, discarding the idea there's any biological predisposition, what is it in the structure that we're getting these differential, much higher case rates in the different populations? And as we see it's, we're very familiar with Latinos, clearly the farm workers. Uh, It's 100% Latino, 100% immigrant, probably 50, 60, 70, 80% undocumented, depending on the crop and the time and everything else. If, for example, you remember the first couple of weeks of the lockdown, people were fighting in the stores over toilet paper and paper towels? How could we forget? (laughs) Yes. Well, here we have food being grown by undocumented, illegal aliens, right? If they were not tending the food in the stores in about a week, we would be fighting over food. Mm -hmm. That's how essential they are to our ability to shelter in place. We've called them essential workers. We don't provide them with the insurance or access to care. And even worse, they could be deported at any moment. So we're going to deport the very people that put food on our table. We're also denying them access to medical care. And then we think, oh, this is a very just and uh, equitable society. I think there are some structural things we need to really consider. Like every time we sit down to eat, we should thank the undocumented. Without them, we would not be eating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're speaking to is the the way that this crisis, the coronavirus crisis, and now in a lot of ways, the protests see across the country are highlighting just how deep these disparities go and how, um, how much we rely on, on groups that we've historically oppressed. And so I guess as Los Angeles, in, like California and much of the country is beginning to reopen, um, what guidance would you want policymakers to follow in righting some of those wrongs and in making sure that our reopening is an equitable one? Uh, and how might we look to history in order to to guide us?
1: When I was a student at UCSF in the early 70s, there were, if I remember correctly, around about 45, 40, 45 county hospitals. Almost every county had a hospital. The idea was if you didn't have insurance, You're dead broke. The counties were supposed to be the providers of last resort. That's why we had county hospitals. Now, I believe we have six in the state. Six. So if you're in a county that does not have a county hospital and you don't have insurance, what are you going to do? Who are you going to call? These were political decisions that were made over a period of time. And now it's coming back to haunt us. So, yes, there are structural issues. We made decisions. One way, we decided in the 1930s not to offer national health insurance because the uh, states in the South did not want to allow equal access to care for African Americans. We, again, did not offer it in the 50s. And Obamacare, unfortunately, is not universal health. This step in the right direction, but only a step. It excluded, uh, in fact, many of these essential workers. Recent immigrants are not eligible to buy uh, insurance on the exchanges with their own money and undocumented or simply excluded from the very get-go. And yet we eat because of them. So these are decisions, political decisions we have made and we can make them differently, but we do need to participate. We need to register. We need to vote. And when people ask me, what should we do? There are people protesting in the streets, et cetera. I say the most important thing you can do, register, vote and raise your voice. And I've had people, oh, but voting is meaningless. And I well, it's so meaningless. Why are some people trying so hard to stop you from voting if it's so mm-hmm. meaningless? And yeah. there's a lot of effort to suppress the vote.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that that is actually a perfect place to um, to close. I think, uh, Dr. David Hayes-Bautista, thank you so much um, for joining us and just for for taking us on a journey, right, in the last 250 years (laughs) yes, uh, to help us understand a little bit about what's going on today and what we might do differently in the future.
1: Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. Uh, the podcast can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at Luskin Center, L-U-S-K-I-N Center at history.ucla.edu. Thank you so much and see you next time. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.